I feel like street art was what I was doing in college when I was going around sneaking up, putting up posters and stickers because that has this element of surprise, element of like, oh, what is that? It's kind of like underground and it's technically still illegal, but it's not all street art is and isn't legal. But now I find myself just being, you know, muralist. And so I feel like that allows you to reach people and allows you to really transform environments. Welcome to Hello Atelier. I'm your host, Betsy Blodgett, and with me is producer Jonathan Getz. Hello. Over the last few years, the landscape in Kansas City has been changing. Graffiti art, once considered a blight on abandoned buildings, has slowly started to slink out of the alleyways to become a commissioned focal point on many prominent buildings. We got our first good taste of street art when we visited Miami in 2016, where the shockingly elaborate and expansive murals of the Wynwood District have made it a tourist destination. I had never seen an area like that. Every building was covered in art, and it went on for block after block. These days, driving in or near downtown Kansas City, murals can be found on nearly every block. But note that these paintings aren't being hastily produced in the dead of night by vigilante artists, only to be painted over the next day by a disgruntled landlord. No, artists like today's guest Phil Schaefer, aka Psych Style, are being hired to instantly inject some vitality and culture into what might be an otherwise nondescript city block. It reminds me of FDR's Public Works Project, which was when the government employed thousands of artists to create murals to embellish public buildings. However, instead of painting a generic American scene, street artists are entrusted to let their imaginations run wild. I've seen everything from a mustachioed walrus to abstract blasts of color animating buildings around town. Kansas City should consider itself fortunate that street murals have gained some traction. Between the elaborate planning and ultimate execution in the open elements, it's no easy task. It was seriously hot that day we visited Phil at a job of his near the city market. Nevertheless, he and his employees were a couple stories up on those lifts against a blazing brick wall, executing Phil's vision and enlivening the neighborhood. It's admirable and exciting work, and I feel fortunate we got to capture Phil's story. Let's kick it over to Phil, who starts by sharing the impact of art history on his work. I did a lot of research, you know, in college about uh, some of the art movements in Eastern Europe around the turn of the century. So constructivism and Dadaism and the Bauhaus. And I feel like that at the core is kind of like where my inspiration comes from. So artists like uh, Mahali Naj, Naj, I don't know if I'm butchering his name, he's a Hungarian artist. And he literally paints these type of shapes like I do with this kind of overlying, overlaying like effect filters. But I mean, this was in like 19... 1915 early stuff so he was a graphic designer and he was a painter and he was a sculptor and he was like a lot of those early artists where they had a lot of hats you know um he also taught in chicago and so when i went to chicago last year i saw a big big exhibit of his and it kind of reintroduced me like oh man this is where i get it from it's this constructivist you know futurist kind of deal so you know barbara kruger is one of my heroes too She's the one that started the whole streetwear thing with Supreme. I mean, Supreme bit that off of her, but, and she owns it and she keeps doing that same red block with the Futura font. Yeah, I did a lot of early pieces that were like text-based work that was definitely based off things that I've learned from her and also another artist named Jenny Holzer who still does that kind of work. And these are very strong women artists in like the 70s, late 60s, I think mostly the 70s that were basically just text artists doing this thing. So it's like graffiti except 
I don't know, with a twist, with an intellectual twist, with a, with a subversive message, you know? And so, yeah, it's that combination of constructivism, futurism, all those isms from that kind of early 20th century out of Eastern Europe meets kind of like 90s hip-hop. And you throw that together, and that's, that's, that's my style. You grew up in Brooklyn? Ten very formative years, 78 to 89. It felt like uh, Sesame Street, tight-knit neighborhoods. When I lived in a section called Flatbush, there was, uh, you know, two grocery stores, a public library, a school, like two pizza places, a laundromat, all the things you would need, a bakery, restaurant, a little tiny playground. Everything you would need was just on your block. And so your block would have a block party every year in the summer. And, you know, they'd have bands and booths and they'd open up the fire hydrants but it, it felt like real contained, like you really didn't need to leave your block, you know, from around the corner. So, I mean, I lived on a side street of this block, but it was all fed into it. And so that was when the graffiti art was coming up. It was an explosion. There were certain subway stops that were completely destroyed. Uh, like if you see over there on my wall where there's a bunch of little like tags everywhere and I'm kind of practicing. Imagine that, but for an entire subway stop. So this was uh, Parkside Avenue on the D train. I mean, it was like you step off the subway and it was just like kablooey. Like everything was covered in something. As a little kid, you're like, yeah, this is amazing. You know, so I would draw on these little cards or the back of uh, jewelry boxes, just whatever I could find. That's how I started drawing was on the subway, riding to uh, school with my mother who was taking nurses and classes up in like Harlem. So we lived in Brooklyn and she would take the train all the way up to Harlem. That was a good two-hour ride to get a lot of sketching done. The graffiti around town was definitely a huge influence, and then also just the school murals. You know, a handball court, and then there'd be, you know, just stuff for kids, you know, like Crazy Dog or some faces from people in the neighborhood. Just all this kind of imagery is definitely something that's still in the back of my mind when I'm making what I'm doing now. After years of spending late nights wheat-pasting posters in windows and sticker-bombing psych style around town, Phil became disheartened by the ephemeral presence of his art, as landlords and city cleaners took it down as fast as he could put it up. So he looked to another medium to get his work on the streets, this time in the form of a walking billboard. 2008, I uh, said, all right, I'm going to try to take Psychonomics Clothing National I'm going to go out to Vegas to the Magic Trade Show. Except I didn't do Magic. I went to a little bootleg version called uh, Untitled or United. I think it was United. Because I would have been, you know, setting up a big booth and making orders. And I had uh, three sales. I had New York, Tokyo, and Milwaukee. (laughs) So I was like, all right, that's a good start. But that was not enough to sustain a brand. And then with the economy tanking, it was hard for people to spend $25 on a t-shirt. It was tough. I kind of realized that if I called myself a t-shirt designer or I'm a clothing designer, I'm really limiting myself when I'm truly an artist and I could do whatever I want. And so I'd had art shows and did paintings, did curatorial things and, you know, hip hop shows and did events. And I also DJed. Yeah, there was that little in-between period where I was like a club DJ slash sushi lounge DJ. That was fun and weird. What I would do when I would DJ, I DJ at Nara, I would pick a table and I would DJ to that table. 
And I was like, this is a table of five or six. Looks like they're going to be here for a while. Let me just play what they like, and they'll have a good time. And if there's one big table having a good time at the restaurant, everyone's like, oh, look, it's a party. I got even sick of playing this music that I liked, which was weird. It was just like, man, I love this Jay-Z song, but, man, if I have to play Give It To Me One More Time, you know, <laughs> or if I have to play this, like, nerd remix again, I'm like, I'm just going to throw these turntables at somebody. That ended in a abrupt way which was fine because it forced me to reevaluate what i was doing as an artist and saying you know quit trying to mess around these clubs quit trying to worry about someone else paying for your art like you owe yourself to the club owner like you you know like well what do you want to do what do you want to hear you know so it's like go make your own thing and so i kind of made a decision i want to start making my own artwork as an artist and not trying to just sell merch or sell like come out and party with psych style you know so it's a little little shift. For baseball fans, the annual All-Star Game is a must-watch event where the best players from the league get together to do battle. For a city, hosting the All-Star Game is a momentous occasion, one that launches the area into the national spotlight and brings in floods of tourists. In 2015, the game came to Kansas City, an event that unwittingly launched a street art revolution. Kansas City is like, it's a graffiti town, but in very specific spaces. There's very specific spots where the graffiti takes place. And yeah, there's tags around, but it has its area. When the All-Star Game came to town, that changed everything. So from that point on, the city was like, okay, we're going to charge you a certain amount of fines for having graffiti on your buildings. And we're going to enforce that law. They still have that law. So they started enforcing it. And so me and some friends, especially the guys from the old Culture Chameleon Gallery, a guy by the name of Lee Burgess went to a lot of the local businesses around Oak Street and was like, hey, don't pay the city $250, pay the artists, and then we'll come and paint murals on the side of your building and no one will mess with it. And if they do, then we'll fix it. And so this is what kind of started what you know now as Art Alley. And so one of the most photographed buildings is on 17th and Oak. So that's the Strata 9 building or the Strata building. They were nice enough to let me curate the nine panels on the side of the building. So there's a Kansas City one in the middle that I painted, and then there's other artists from Kansas City and Denver, Milwaukee, um, St. Louis. And so that's one of the hottest spots for, uh, you know, senior photos and <laughs> picture with your car, picture with your scooter, picture with your dog. I kind of call that time this kind of rebirth, and it's just grown exponentially since then. I think I read where you, like, you have the zebra chest image and you have some other symbols that you kind of often or did often put in your work. Yeah, the angry zebra which hopefully will make a return, is my spirit animal. So he's a chess piece because, uh, you know, we as artists or even people of blended, I guess, cultural ethnicities, you know, anything like that, you know, move in different ways around society. You know, so the chess piece of the night moves and it's L-shaped. It's different than, you know, it's the most unique moving one, put it like that. So that's why he's a chess piece. He's black and white because my mother's black, my father's white. I consider myself striped, not gray. You know what I mean? Because there's definitely dualities to it. I see both sides of a lot of arguments and a lot of ideas. Yeah, the zebra is that icon that kind of represents, you know, anybody with two of something in them. They identify with, you know, I am this and this. And sometimes those two jive together and sometimes they fight. And sometimes you're persecuted for being not enough of the other. And so that's kind of like that spirit animal for anyone who says, you know, hey, guess what? I'm both these things. Live with it. But it, it doesn't just talk about race. It could be, you know, religions or 
you know, sexuality or whatever too. So go take a walk, walk around your scenario, walk around your surroundings. Um, the first mural I painted in Kansas city was based on my walk to work every day. When you're out on these walks, take a second look at the murals, take a second look at the graffiti, look at the street art. And when you take a picture of it, try to find the artist's name at the bottom of the mural and tag them in your picture that you post to Instagram. <laughs> Give somebody some props. Um, yeah, like take a notice of your surroundings and see either what the architects have done to like define a space or what the artists have done, you know, kind of in tangent with the architects. The stereotype of the starving artist has been around for centuries. You're supposed to suffer for your art, to dedicate yourself to it to the exclusion of everything else. Or are you? In today's world, a talented designer is a coveted craft laborer, and it's possible to make a living with your art while also expressing yourself. I definitely take inspiration from some things I heard Shepard Ferry say in a talk he gave here in Kansas City. This is the time he was running a like a design house and he was doing like ads for Mountain Dew and some other companies. And he said, you know, don't be afraid to make money off your own artwork because someone else will. And I was like, you know what? Damn straight. You got it right. And so that really kind of enforced my idea of like, I'm going to go ahead and become a graphic designer. I'm going to do what I do and not care. Some old oh, man it's like sold out. It's like, well, did he? Or is he just getting paid for his art finally? You know? So my version of this kind of graffiti street art style um, it's based on my graphic design career. So during all this time, I still have a day job. That's what it, people don't know. I've been, worked at KU Med Center since I was, well, since 2001. So all this time, I've got a steady day job. This is all the stuff I'm doing on the side to express myself or, you know, extra hustle. I don't know how I do it sometimes myself, but I'm saying that my day job, my KU family, I call them that, is just one of the biggest support groups I've ever had. You know, to just understand that I'm an artist too and then I don't just belong behind a desk and then I'm going to go do all this stuff but when I'm back I'm back and I'll handle the stuff and so I go back and forth between like super hard week at work to you know a less demanding week and then I'm like all right I'm out again it is very tricky but it's worked because of the support of my core there and they've been really good about allowing me to be who I am and they've always been that I mean since 2001 it's been the culture of this particular group that I work with that's like you know I respect my job and do the best I can and they respect me as an artist and like understand if you don't always need to be sitting at your desk to get things done, you know. Whether public art functions as a piece of entertainment, a thing of beauty, or a storytelling device, it can weave itself into the very fiber of a community as much as any business or landmark. Knowing that his murals will become a part of a neighborhood's culture, Phil takes his opportunities seriously, no matter how far they may be from his hometown. It's interesting what will happen just by who you know and when you're in the situation to be ready to do what you do. Does that make sense? So you, you, you figured like, all right, I'm going to just keep working towards things. And so then when one day that phone call comes and says, hey, come to Jamaica, we got a mural for you. You're like, bet, I'm there. And so sure enough, that happened to me where, you know, friends of a friend's got around to me. And then me and my girlfriend, Holly, went down to um, Kingston, Jamaica to check out the early childhood home. Or like I guess he called him the early home. He's a young adult of Bob Marley. So in Shrinchtown, he lived in a tenement yard. And these are government built houses from the you know, late early 60s. So the rooms in these tenement yards were about as half as big as my studio. My studio is about, 
maybe 12 feet wide, 17 feet long. So there are small rooms, but that was the room you lived in. And then there's a central yard, and then there was uh, basically, you know, kitchens and bathrooms at the end of the yard. So the whole thing was shaped like a U. And so all of the activity happened in the yard. And so what's happening now is an architect named Chris in, in Kingston has come and taken over one of these tenement yards and redone it and made it nice to look like it used to look back in the 60s and also made it into a museum. Yeah, it was a real uh, intense trip because we spent literally like four days in Kingston. So people are like, oh, are you going to be down there, you know, sipping drinks on the beach? And it's like, no, we're just diving straight into it, you know. Um, so we had a great um, tour guide. His name is S. Dixon Myers, and he's a... Uh, part of a student group organizer and uh, he works at Suwannee University of the South in Tennessee. What the plan is is that a student group of 10 or so students plus one of my old interns Curtis and myself and Holly we're going back in January and we're going to paint a mural in the culture yard at this little back area. Yeah this is a really cool opportunity to be able to kind of tell the story of the culture yard you know in this mural and it's not just about Bob Marley but also about all the other great musicians and people who came from this. So the, the idea is that this building, the way they constructed it, it allowed people to have this kind of community culture where you share in this central space. And so that shared space basically sparked this creativity, which sparked culture, which, you know, grew out of that one little yard. Yeah, I learned a lot about, you know, this one little space, and I'm going to try to do my best to kind of, um, kind of highlight, you know, some of the story about how people migrated there and then, what the activities were there and then how that grew out of that area and then basically affected the whole world like Bob Marley's music did. But there's a lot of planning that goes into something like this. I'm going to take into account a few things. Like the architecture is the space of the wall that we're going to work on. It's it's two walls and it forms a corner of this U-shaped patio. And so I want to tell two stories in this where it's like the past and the future and they meet in this chaos in the middle. So I'm going to start with basically representations of the type of folks that would live there, like the musicians and the you know artists and the cooks and the kids and the you know people who were influential like idea of pan-africanism rastafarism but also an independent jamaica free of british rule and yes this is a lot to put in one mural every year i do a service day mural for martin luther king day so i've been teaming up with city year which is a local well they're a national not-for-profit but they have a local chapter here I've teamed up with them to do murals in schools um, in KC and also in Chicago. And, man, it just makes a huge difference. I don't know if you've ever been in Central Academy. It, it looks like a prison. You know, it really has, like, long, gray, cinder block walls. In contrast to, like, what I went to school at Paseo, and it was open atriums and light, five different colored stone and blue lockers, you know, so colorful. But these buildings were built around similar times too but it's a completely different style being able to take my mural into like a stale building like central academy and boom put a pop of color or just something for the kids to see and be like you know all right yeah there's my mural um the one i did for the plaza academy it really was a fun project where i actually worked with the students and said okay if you could put anything in a mural what would you put like give me your illustrations and give me your ideas and so i literally took exactly what they were given me or what they drawn and i was like you want a broccoli monster you got it so there's just like a four foot broccoli monster in this mural <laughs> and it works i also enjoy making things for other people and so even though 
you know, you might see, oh, yeah, you're getting paid to do these giant murals. Yeah, they're, they're for everyone, too. And so I say if you have a thing that you do, whether it's you make mixtapes, you make crocheted hats, or you make little tiny hexagons for people, you know, like make something for somebody. I think that's one thing I enjoy doing, even though it's roundabout way that I'm thinking about it. It's like, you know, yeah, I'm painting it for me. I'm painting it for my job for this specific client. But then again, it's shared with sometimes the world if the red hashtag catches on. You never know. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Phil Schaefer. To learn more about Phil's work and to see pictures from his studio, head over to helloatelier.org. Hello Atelier is a production of the Phonicalia Media Network. An easy way to help support this program is to subscribe for free on iTunes or Google Play, or head over to our Patreon page to become our patron. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see extras from the podcast and where you can live a little Hello Atelier every day.